Amen. All right, well, this is one of our uh, pseudo-family Sundays. It's not the full family Sunday in which we have all the kids here from zero up, but we do have from ages four or five up with us. Um, and as we've just talked about the value of life and the, the, the precious gift of, of children that we have, um, I just want to encourage you that as they're sitting here and listening, um, take note. Help them after. Teach them what we are doing. Use this opportunity. When you go home, discuss the message. Talk about the things that you disagreed with. Hopefully it's not a long list. But then have that moment in which you have that influence over their lives. Um, I think it's quite true that our children are capable of more than we often give them credit for. Um, some of the best questions I ever get are usually um, from my niece when we go to uh, my in-laws after the service, and Charlotte will come to me with some type of question that I don't know how to answer. Um, but it's so encouraging to see the progression of children. So, as we start this morning, here's something I just want to ask you. What is something you would never want to be associated with? with what is something that you would be like ah if if anyone ever associated me with that thing it would be a problem maybe it's death we don't want to be associated with death we avoid death we want to stay far away from it maybe it's illness after we've had this whole pandemic and covid and all these things and and if someone had covid in your midst you did not want to be associated with them you wanted to make sure there were multiple degrees of separation maybe it's destruction all of these negative things that we don't like and we don't want to be associated with but what's funny is that in our culture we often take negative things and then give them positive spins over time we give new meaning to words for example we hate death but if someone does something really well you might hear someone say dude you murdered it straight up killed it you were slaying up there we hate death but then we give this positive spin to it we dislike illness but how do people describe an awesome experience? It was sick. So sick. What's that about? We don't want to see destruction, but talk about someone's rise in popularity, and you might say, they're blowing up. I hope not. That's awful. All of these things we don't want to be associated with, and yet with time we give new meaning to the words, and we're okay with the association. Then there's things that no amount of time allows us, there's no positive spin in which we want to be associated with that thing. In our passage today, we have one of those things that no one wants to be associated with. In fact, instead of giving new meaning and a positive spin to the word, it's so bad that even names of people associated with that action become a curse. What we're going to talk about today is betrayal and traitors. It's fascinating if you think back, there's no positive spin to the word betrayal. You can't use it as a compliment. There's no positive outlook on being a traitor. 
It's so bad that even the names associated with it gain new meaning. What does it mean if someone calls you a Benedict Arnold? You're a traitor. It's gotten a new meaning. Here's the case from, from our, our passage. When was the last time you met a new family and they're going through their names and here's Thomas, he's, here's Peter, and here's our son Judas? Doesn't happen. Betrayal, traitors are something that we in no way want to be associated with with that. No one wants to be associated with betrayal. No one wants to be called a traitor, which makes my next question a little uncomfortable, maybe even offensive. What kind of traitor are you? What kind of traitor are you? In our passage this morning, we're going to see the tale of two traitors. Two traitors in our passage, one at the beginning and one at the end. Two traitors guilty of betrayal, and yet the end of their stories could not be more different. Two traitors, but different kinds. In their tale, we find the reality of all humanity. We might hate the action and the association of betrayal, but traitors is what we are. Our passage this morning is in John 13, but before you turn to John 13, I actually want us to do some foundational work and go back to John 1. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John 1. We're not going to spend much time here, but this is a foundational truth that we need to remind ourselves about before we get to the passage. This is the foundational truth. It's all about Jesus. That's the foundation that we start with. That's where the Gospel of John begins. Look at verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Why do we need to start here? Because we need to know who Christ is and his position. Christ is everything. It's all about him. One of the songs, uh, when we did the children dedication, we gave a book called uh, Theology. And one of the songs that there's a CD that kind of goes with it, or it's on Spotify, and the, the name of the song is, It's All About Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about him. Now, why do we need to start there? Because the problem, the reason we don't think of ourselves as traitors is because we don't recognize who our king and commander is. If you think yourself, it's about you, this story is all about me, then you're not likely to think of yourself as a traitor. Why? Because I'm not in the habit of betraying myself. I don't consider myself a traitor because I do the things that work best for me in my eyes. But that's totally different if we think it's all about Jesus. If everything was made by him and if everything is created then for him. The way that we then determine whether or not we are our traitors is what we have done to God. Have we betrayed God? If you're a student of the word, 
If you know your own heart, then the only answer to that question is yes. We have betrayed God. The question is not if we are traitors, it's what kind of traitors. Now that's heavy, and we haven't even gotten to our passage yet. You might be thinking, man, I came here to be encouraged, and this is what you have for me. You call me a traitor and betrayer. You offended me. You've offended my family. This is the heavy start, but here's the great thing. Our passage has a surprise waiting for us at the end. We're going to go through some heavy stuff, but at the end, there's something worth waiting for. We get to see how Christ responds to traitors and betrayal, and he saves his best response for last. So with that, go ahead and go to John 13. We are going to be looking at the first verse. Here's Christ's first response to betrayal. Christ grieves. The first thing that it says is at the, right, at the beginning at verse 21, it says, after saying these things. Well, what things did he say? In last week's passage, we saw that Jesus demonstrated his love in a magnificent way. He washed his disciples' feet, and then he urged them to do the same. He said, what I've done for you, you also should do for others. What he's telling them is you need to love others like I've loved you. If me, your Lord and Master, if I'm doing this for you, the greater than you who are lesser should also be doing this. And then he also says, though, that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is a heavy scene. There's a lot of confusion on the part of the disciples, and there's a lot of emotion on the part of Christ. Jesus knows this is his final hour. He knows what's coming, which is part of why his act of love was so spectacular, that he chose that moment to wash their feet. But now in our passage, we see some of the emotion Christ is feeling It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Why is he emotional? Because the one he loves will betray him. It says, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Notice that he doesn't parse out, well, one of a different type of person, one that's totally separate. No, one of you, one of the ones I love, one of my disciples will betray me. I don't know everything that was going through Christ's mind, but just try to set the scene with me. Jesus is at the table with his disciples These disciples are ones he has chosen and demonstrated immense love over the last three years, including him, their Lord and Master, humbly washing their feet. More than that, Christ's whole ministry has been leading to this moment. Throughout his ministry, he has said, the hour has not yet come. It is not the time. And yet right now, now is the moment when he said, it is the time. But more than just his ministry, his entire life has been building to this moment. The Father sent the Son to come into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. His whole life has been leading to this moment. 
But more than that, throughout the entire Old Testament, there have been echoes and hints of a Savior who would come, an eternal king and perfect sacrifice, the seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. But more than that, even before the formation of the world, Christ knew that this was where he was heading. Set the scene of what Jesus knows. Everything has been coming to this moment. He has demonstrated love from the beginning of time. And what he says right now is truly, truly, one of you, one of the ones I have shown love to time and time again, one of you will betray me. So what is Christ's first response to Judas' betrayal? It's grief. Jesus grieves Judas' betrayal. The word troubled means to be stirred up. It's to be in turmoil. We need to understand this word is pretty broad and is used to describe different things. In fact, two times Jesus will say in the next coming chapters, he'll tell his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. He tells them to stop. Why? Because often the way that we have our hearts troubled is wrong. The way our hearts are troubled is the way of humanity. It's the way of sinners. For example, our hearts are troubled often when we feel helpless. We look at a situation and we say, there's nothing I can do. This is out of control and I'm troubled because I want to be in control. And we don't trust God. We often are troubled because we doubt something unexpected happens. It wasn't according to plan, and we're saying, God, how does this work? How is this part of your plan? I'm troubled because I doubt that you really love me. Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, he's talking about those kinds of trouble. He's saying, don't let your heart be troubled in those ways. And yet here he's troubled, but how is he troubled? Is he troubled because he feels helpless? Is he troubled out of doubt of the Father's plan? No. We're actually told two different times that Jesus is troubled. One is here in our passage, and the other is when he's on the road, and Mary comes running to him, weeping. And he sees the, the Jews that are with her weeping, and he says, and it says that his heart, his spirit was troubled. Why was he troubled? Both times did Jesus know what was going to happen. With Mary, with Lazarus, with Judas, did he know what was going to happen? He did. Did Jesus know that he would overcome the hardship before him? He did. Did he know that in the end it would lead to his glory? Both times he talks about it. This is so that God would be glorified. It comes later in our passage. Both times, he knows those things. So then why is he troubled? Why is he grieved? I believe both times he is troubled for the same reason. He is troubled out of love for the lost and sorrow for sin. He's troubled out of love for the lost and sorrow for sin. He loved Mary and Martha and was grieved to see their pain. He felt the sorrow of sin because he knew that behind the shadow of Lazarus' physical death was the substance of sin. He knew the true reality. He was troubled. I believe the same emotions are present here. Jesus loved Judas and he grieved to see one so lost that he loved.
He grieved as he felt the sorrow of sin as he foretold Judas' ultimate betrayal. That grief would be Christ's response, that, it, that he would in this moment choose to, to grieve is astounding and also comforting. What would you expect the response to be of one who knew he was going to be betrayed? I would be indignant. I would be angry. I would be vindictive. I would do so many things. If I know someone that I have invested in, someone that I have loved from the beginning of time, if I knew they were going to betray me, I would not grieve it. I would be angry. But Christ was loving to the end. What is amazing is that Christ's grief demonstrates genuine love even for one like Judas. One of the shows I watched growing up as a kid um, was Hogan's Heroes. Now, if you know about Hogan's Heroes, you might be wondering why I grew up watching them because it was far beyond my time, but I grew up in a third world country, so get over it. And Hogan's Heroes, for many of you who don't know what Hogan's Heroes is, Hogan's Heroes is a comedy set in a Nazi concentration camp. You heard that right. Or prisoner of war camp. It works. It's funny. It's hilarious. But Hogan is the colonel, American colonel, in the prison. And what they do, and they have a very dumb commandant, very dumb person that's in control, and they continually sabotage everything that is happening that the Nazis are doing around them. And different episodes, though, each one is its own story, in different episodes, you, they, the, the Germans are thinking, oh, something's weird about that happens, keeps happening around Stalag 13. And so they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put in a spy. We're going to put in someone that can go in, befriend Hogan, and then betray him. Now, what happens every time is that Hogan is way too smart for these, these guys, and so he finds out what is happening, and so what, he does, what does he do? They befriend the traitor, they bring him in, but the whole time they're setting them up, him up for failure. Externally, they treat them as if they like the, the person, but internally, they have this whole other plan going on, because that's what you do with traitors. You set them up for defeat. You destroy them. You crush them. Is that how Christ treated Judas? Did Jesus, the entire time that he was with Judas, have him on the outside and just say, you know what, I know what you're going to do, so I'm not going to demonstrate any love towards you. No, even knowing what Judas was going to do, he loved him. How is that a comfort to us? We have betrayed God. This isn't a new thing. It didn't, betrayal didn't start with Judas. When did betrayal start? In the garden. You go back all the way to the beginning. God creates out of love a perfect world for people that he loves. He gives them something. He gives no other creation. He says, you will be created in my image. I'm going to give you something special. You are going to be like me. So serve me love me. What do they decide? They say, you know what? We know you made us like you, but we don't think it's enough. We really want to be like you. They betray him. Instead of following their savior, instead of following their God, they follow the serpent. They depose God from the throne 
and place themselves there. From that moment on, the story of humanity is a story of betrayal and continual traitors. So how does Christ respond to that? Does he just say, is it angry and he's like, that's it, I'm done? Let's wipe them off, let's get rid of them? No, he grieves because he loves. We see that Christ grieves traitors, but Christ also governs over traitors. That's the second response that we see. You see, this is heavy but remember, I said earlier, there's a surprise at the end of our passage. Because Stick with me, because he, here's one of the things I want to be careful right here. When I say that, that he grieved over Judas, don't misunderstand me and think that therefore there was no judgment. Did Christ love? Yes. Was there still judgment? Yes. Does God love us when we are traitors? Yes. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Does that show love? Yes. But are we guilty? And is there judgment for those who are guilty? There is. Because Christ is in control. So let's look now at the second response. Christ governs. Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. The disciples have no clue what's going on. Now, what, what we're thinking, uh, just to, for the setting, this would be a feast in which they would be lying on their sides and, and reaching over and eating. And so Jesus would be lying down with his head towards the table, and then John would be in front of him. And, and Jesus has just said something, that one of you is a traitor. One of this inner circle is going to betray me. And, and they don't know. What does that show us? They couldn't tell. In other Gospels, it says that each one of the masses, is it, is it me? It's not like when we would think of pictures of like, oh, I know which one Judas is, that guy. They had no clue. Peter says, John, John, throws a piece of bread. John, ask him. Find out, find out who it is. And Jesus demonstrates who it is. None of them knew, but Christ did, and he was in control. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. What does this show us? There is a far greater battle going on than we realize. Sometimes we lose sight that we are in the midst of a spiritual war of cosmic proportions. That's not an exaggeration. This is the battle of all battles. It is the war of good versus evil, of light versus darkness, of God versus Satan. But Christ was in control. He governs. Second part of verse 27 says this, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. This is a confusing statement from Christ. Again, the disciples don't understand. Is he going to buy food? Maybe he's going to help some poor people. Jesus, why'd you say, go and do what you're going to do quickly? 
It is a confusing statement. Why did Jesus say that? Because even as Satan seeks to execute his darkest plan, Christ remains in control. Is anything happening outside of Christ's governance? Is this outside of Christ's control? It's not. Now, this is just an aside. Please don't take this too far. But can you imagine what went through Satan's mind when Jesus said that? As much as everything for Christ is culminating in this moment, the same can be said of Satan. This is the moment in which he seeks to destroy the light and conquer with darkness. This is the moment when he brings death to the God of life. In Satan's mind, everything is working perfectly. He's already disrupted. He's already dirtied all of humanity. And now all of the plans coming together because he's gotten God himself to come to this world. And, in the, and God has his, his people, but he's infiltrated. He's got his own servant in their midst. Everything's working perfectly. And in this moment, Satan is within Judas... The plan's going, and then Jesus looks and says, do it. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> do it. Do it quickly. Do it now. Obviously, Satan didn't understand or comprehend what Jesus was doing there, because if he did, he never would have gone through with the plan that guaranteed his defeat. But in that moment, Jesus says, when the darkness is at its darkest, he says, do it. He remains in control. This is the wondrous reality of God's sovereignty that Christ governs. But that doesn't mean it is without pain and without a battle. Verse 30 says this, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. John adds that last part. It's not just so that we can know, oh yeah, it was dinner. That's, that's when this was happening. What's one of the themes, a, a motif that John has used throughout his entire gospel, even from the very first verses? Light and darkness. John gives us clues for example, when Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus, it says clearly, and Nicodemus came during the night. We come to this scene in the Bible, and it finishes with this statement. He is going to betray. Satan is within him. He's going out, and it was night. The darkness had come. This is not a light moment. This is not a happy-go-lucky time. This is the culmination of the battle, and it's night. Many of you might feel like this is your life right now, that this verse describes where you are, that you are living right now in the night. You don't know how it's going to work out. The reality that you face is much more darkness than it is light. Know that you have a God who understands. Christ was once in the night. But then know that because Christ governs, night does not conquer. If you have any doubt concerning Christ's governance over all things, look no further than our next verses, for he is the one who conquers 
darkness. Christ glorifies and is glorified. Look at verse 31. When he had gone out, this is Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What does Christ declare as soon as Judas has left the room? Victory. I've won. It is night, but night does not conquer the day. The light has come. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Glory! At different points in Scripture, God's glory is described as someone, something that shines. Yes, it is night, but it is in the night that my true glory will shine the brightest. No sooner has Judas left to do Satan's bidding than Christ declares his victory over the night. This is how the Gospel of John begins. John 1, verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When we looked at that verse, that that word that says overcome it has two sides to it. It's that the darkness does not conquer the light, but the other meaning is that the darkness does not comprehend the light. We see that in this passage. Satan has his plan. He has his way in which he thinks he will defeat the light, but he doesn't comprehend. Because Jesus says, do it, and he doesn't stop. He's not terrified. He still thinks he's got the best plan. He doesn't comprehend. If Satan comprehended what was happening, he never would have gone through with it. But also we see that the darkness does not overcome it. It does not conquer it. Right after the statement, it was night. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now will my light shine the brightest. This is his story. This is his power. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. And his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my Christ is the ancient of days. What a comfort we have in Jesus who is never conquered by traitors. Even the schemes of darkness serve only to heighten the shining of his glory. This is our Christ who both governs and is glorified. And it is this, it is this who he is, if this is who he is, if he is the commander, if he is the king who conquers, who governs, does he have the right to command. If this is who he is, if he is the one that can conquer darkness, does he have the right to command? He does. Which is what he then does for his disciples. Christ gives commands. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Again, Christ reveals the reality of his imminent departure. He's leaving, but as he prepares, he also wants to leave. He also wants to prepare his disciples. He wants them to live for him even when he is not bodily with them. He tells them, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. We saw when that, that discussion he had with the Jews back in John chapter 7. 
What's interesting, though, is that what Jesus said then is not identical to what he's saying here. He quotes the same things, but there was an extra part that he said to the Jews back in John 7. In John 7, he says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Why? Because the Jews aren't actually seeking him. They're seeking a different savior. They're seeking a savior of their own fabrication. But Jesus doesn't say to his disciples here, you will seek me and you will not find me. No, instead he says, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Why doesn't he say that they won't find them? Because the Bible says that if we seek him with all our hearts, we will find him. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all you, your heart. But he says, you can't, where I am going, you cannot come. Why? Because it's not your time. How often has Christ demonstrated that he does everything according to the time of the Father? The time has not come. The time is not yet. It's not the hour. Now he's showing the same for us. It's not your time yet. You can't come to where I'm going. I'm going, as verse 1 showed us in verse thir uh, chapter 13, he's going to be with the Father. It's not our time yet. They still have a purpose where they are. And what is that purpose? He tells them as he gives them a new command. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the second time during this eventful meal that he has told them to love one another. This is what we saw last week as Christ gave them an example as he served them sacrificially. He said, do what I'm doing. I'm loving you to the end. I'm loving the least of these. Follow my example. Last week, the, the tone was that Jesus was urging them to follow his example. He was using the logical progression. Hey, if I'm doing this, me, me who's greater, you should do this. But is he using a logical progression this time? He's not. What is the basis for what he's doing? I'm your king. I'm your Lord. I'm your savior. I am commanding you to love one another. This is the command of the one who conquers darkness. This is the command of the creator God. Love one another. Here's our question. Have you followed the command of your king? Have you followed the command of your king? Let me pose a test for you, something that you can do on your own. Jesus gives the results in verse 35 of what happens when people, when his disciples are loving the way they should. It says that by this all people will know. So here's the test. In this room, think of someone that you struggle to love. Privately. Right now, who is a person in this room, part of this body, that you struggle to love? If the world, the only thing they knew about you was you and the relationship you had with this other individual, would they know that you are Christ's disciple? If the only thing they could observe is your relationship with this person that God has placed in your midst, would they know 
that you are his disciple? I'll answer, they wouldn't. Not for me. There are people that I struggle to love, and if people knew my heart, if people could observe all of my actions, they would question. What do we call it when a king gives a command and we do the exact opposite of what he commands? What do you call it when a king tells you to love, but you hate? What do you call it when the king says, submit to the spirit, but instead you follow Satan? Betrayal. It's called being a traitor. What do we do? The king just gave a command, and, and I think that every single one of us, I actually I know every single one of us has failed. What do we do? This is who we are, so now what? Well, you remember I promised a surprise for the end. Well, thanks for waiting. We've made it. The last response that God has to betrayal is the greatest. This is Christ's astounding response to our betrayal that he offers and guarantees grace. Christ guarantees grace. Look at the last few verses with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow after. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, maybe you just heard those verses and are like, um, I think I missed the surprise. Where, where was that grace that you, you've been talking about? Where was the surprise that you said was coming at the end? Well, let me show you. Peter and Jesus have this dialogue in which Peter doesn't understand a lot has happened in one night. Peter's already been rebuked for not letting Jesus wash his feet. And now Jesus is saying he's going to leave and Peter can't come. And maybe there's a part of Peter that's insecure because of what's happened. Or maybe there's a part of Peter that's too secure because of who he is. Whatever the reason, Peter says, no, I'm, I'm coming with you. Jesus, Jesus, why can't I come? I would die for you. I will die for you. Here's the thing. I'm not sure if this is a moment of arrogance or not. The reality is Peter will die for him. And Jesus knows that. In the end of, of the Gospel of John, in chapter 21, Jesus foretells how Peter is going to die for him. So it wasn't a lie. It wasn't necessarily boasting. It's true. And then look at how Jesus responds. Peter has just claimed something incredible, and he says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Notice the pattern. In our very first verse, what did we have? We had a truly, truly statement. What was the truly, truly statement at the very first verse, verse 21? One of you will betray me. Now, what's our last verse? Truly, truly, you will deny me. Book ended by betrayal. Why does Jesus point this out? Jesus, that doesn't seem very loving. Peter's having a moment. He's, he's demonstrating something to you, and you, you're going to expose the worst of him? You're going to point out that he's going to deny you?
The reality is, though, that it is love. See, we have two traitors, a tale of two traitors, and yet their positions are vastly different. Two betrayals foretold, one at the beginning, one at the end, but what's the different difference? Why did Jesus reveal this? Was it to knock Peter down, or was it to reveal something greater? It's to reveal something greater. There's something greater that Christ has already revealed to Peter than verse 38. Before he says verse 38, he says something earlier that's greater, and it's in verse 36. Something that Peter didn't understand at the time, but that would grow in meaning with him. Look back at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But here's the statement. But you will. You will follow afterward. Where is Jesus going? He's going to be with the Father. That's in verse 1. What is he guaranteeing to Peter? Peter, you're going to be with me. Peter, where I am going, you can come too. Peter, in all of your failure, in all of your sin, in all of your betrayal, as you are a traitor, I'm still going to let you be with me. Do you see the surprise of grace? Jesus guaranteed that Peter would one day be in heaven. And do you know when he did that? He did that before revealing and knowing what Peter would do. How is that a comfort for us? Jesus doesn't offer grace looking ahead and saying, well, I think that you're going to earn this eventually. Jesus offers grace knowing you will never earn it. And then Jesus reveals the thing that Peter would, ca would cause Peter the most doubt. The thing that he would look back on, and, and, and if Jesus had not revealed it and said, I know Jesus said that I would be with him, but that was before I really messed up. That was before I betrayed him. That was before I denied him. Does he still love me after that? Does he still save sinners and traitors like me? He does. Jesus graciously revealed that which would cause Peter most shame after he had promised the greatest grace. How? How can Christ do this? Because of Christ's greatest response to betrayal. Every person, every being has betrayed God. Every moment since the beginning of humanity has been a repetitious action of continual betrayal of our God. We have all turned from God, every one of us. None of us pursues what is good. No, not one. We have all betrayed him. We are all traitors, but Christ knows that. He grieves over traitors and does not abandon them. Christ came. Christ loved. Christ died. Christ conquered. Christ reveals our betrayal so he can guarantee his grace. And it is this grace that he offers us, for only through him can we be saved. This is our big idea of our message. In Christ, grace is guaranteed even when we stand guilty of betraying God. In Christ, grace is guaranteed even when we stand guilty of betraying God. This is Christ's greatest response to traitors. He offers grace. He offers salvation. The question is, what do you do with his grace? As I said, our passage is bookended by traitors, but there's the difference. One is a traitor under guilt. One is a traitor under grace. Which one are you? Are you a traitor 
under guilt, or are you a traitor under grace? Now make no mistake, all of the traitors are guilty, but not all of them are still treated as guilty. That's grace. If you are a traitor under guilt, then I urge you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. In Christ, grace is guaranteed even as you stand guilty of betraying God. In Christ, there is salvation. Repent and believe. If you don't know how to do that, if you aren't sure if you have done that, please talk to me. Talk to, if you're not comfortable talking to me, talk to any of the members of our church here. We want to show you the grace that Christ offers. Don't walk out that door as a traitor under guilt. If you are a traitor under guilt, there are only two paths, and the path of guilt is a path of judgment. Don't remain there. On the other hand, if you are a traitor under grace, I have a challenge for you as well. The trap we can fall into is thinking that grace is the great reliever of responsibility. Oh, because I have grace, I don't have to worry about anything anymore. Part of that is true. It is God's grace that saves us. And yet, this is the argument in Romans where people say, well, should we sin more so the grace may abound? And Paul's like, no, you don't understand. Grace motivates you. Because of what you received, it means that you should be living differently. Paul addressed that in Romans where those who, there are those who think because grace is guaranteed, action is optional. It's not. Christ has given a command. Christ guaranteed grace for Peter, and yet he still called him to action. The resolution of our passage is in John 21. Peter denies him three times, and then in John 21, Jesus is with Peter, and Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And then what does he tell Peter to do after he asks him, do you love me? He says, feed my sheep. What is that? That's loving one another. It's back to this passage. He brings it back full circle. Peter, do you love me? Love the ones I've given you. Peter, do you love me? Love the ones I've given you. I want to conclude by doing something similar. I want to ask some of you some questions. I'm actually going to call some people specifically out now. I've already checked with the people I'm doing. But I want you to imagine that I'm asking you. Imagine that these questions are my questions to you. Ron, has Christ revealed his love to you? Me too. Ron, have you received his love by faith alone in Christ alone? Me too. Ron, have you betrayed his love time and time again? Me too. Ron, even in light of your betrayal, has Christ guaranteed his grace to you? Me too. Ron, out of gratitude for his grace and submission to his command, will you recommit yourself to love one another and reveal who is our king with me? Me too. Cindy, has Christ revealed his love to you? Me too. Cindy, have you received his love by faith alone in Christ alone? Me too. 
Cindy, have you betrayed his love time and time again? Me too. Cindy, even in light of your betrayal, has Christ guaranteed his grace for you? Me too. Cindy, out of gratitude for his grace and submission to his command, will you commit yourself to love one another and reveal who is our king? Me too. This is the reality that I should be able to ask any one of us who has placed our faith in Jesus Christ. He's revealed his love. We've received his love, and we've betrayed his love. But he gives grace. That doesn't mean that then we just don't care. We recommit ourselves to his command. We're going to transition now to the Lord's Supper. And there's a warning before we take the Lord's Supper, and, and it's in Corinthians 11. It's interesting that one of the things that Paul decides to pull out in the details of when he's sharing is that he says that this was the night the Lord was betrayed. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Now, what's interesting is what revealed Judas' guilt? What was the thing that Jesus did that showed Judas was guilty? He gave him a piece of bread. When we come up here to take this bread, it reveals our guilt. The reason the body of Christ was given for us is because we are guilty. But we do not take the bread under guilt. We take the bread under grace. But not all of us. Later in the passage, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not just this bread that's right here. What is this bread symbolic of? It's the death of Jesus Christ. Christ. This bread is not what makes us guilty. This bread is not what gives us grace. It is the body of Christ that this bread symbolizes. All of us either stand saved or condemned based on the body of Christ. We all stand guilty because of his death. But some of us are redeemed and saved by grace through faith in Christ alone because of what he offers. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, don't eat this. Don't take the bread which points to your guilt when you don't also have the blood of Christ which gives you grace. But if you have the grace, then we do this to celebrate. 